Hello and welcome to the Future of Coding. This is Steve Kraus. Today I have Scott Mueller on the podcast. So Scott is the founder of UCode, an after-school program in California. Uh, we were, we were connected actually through two different ways, uh, which you'll hear about on the podcast. And ever since then, Scott's been a mentor to me, uh, telling me about um, the things he tried and worked and didn't work with his after-school program. And uh, it's been it's been really helpful to hear about. Um, Scott also, like like my last guest, Professor Anand, Scott also teaches his kids uh, how to code in Elm, which is um, both amazing and hilarious that, that I've talked to two of maybe the only people in the world who teach Elm to children. Um, but hopefully through podcasts like this uh, and, and other ways of disseminating this information, other adults will see the value in teaching ML languages to kids. Um, I guess, for example, I learned Haskell when I was in high school at IMAX, which you'll hear about more in this podcast as well. Um, so um, without any further ado, I bring you Scott Mueller. Cool. So given that this is in a, uh, an interview where other people who uh, don't know you um, are going to be listening, I thought maybe we could kind of go back. Um, and even for me, it'd be good to kind of go back and and hear the, the founding story of UCode um, uh, a bit, um, I guess. Um, the the way I think about your stories, it kind of starts with your son, um, Ken, yeah. and um, who I've I've been fortunate enough uh, uh, to work with him a bit, a bit myself, and he is a very special boy. Um, and so yeah, maybe if you could start there and tell tell me, um, I guess, and everyone else who who is listening, a bit about um, how you came to teaching kids to code. Yeah, yeah, I'll try to. Uh try to give you a brief history. Um, thank you for your comment about my son. I'm a very <laughs> proud father. <laughs> um, let me, uh, yeah, let me start, uh, start with him. He's the reason why I started, started UCode. Um, I, uh, he's 11 years old now. So a le- little over 11 years ago, he, uh, was born. <laughs> and as a new father, he was my firstborn. I have now a nine year old daughter as well. I uh, I was obsessed with trying to be a good father or preparing to be a good father when my wife was pregnant and I bought all these books on how to be a father and how to be a parent and child development and those kinds of things and and what really really piqued my interest was brain development it seemed from reading some of these books and some studies that that you can have an impact on your kids intelligence if you uh, make sure that they're exercising their mind, if they're thinking about things and stimulating the different areas of their brain. And, you know, if you do that, then their synapses get pruned better and their dendrites get developed and all these uh, processes that occur during brain development throughout childhood happen better. And so I just felt that was a huge obligation of mine. You know, what, what a great gift you can give your kid to, and to think better, and and so you know when he was uh, when he was a little little kid uh, when he was uh, one year one years old I would have him watch these maybe even younger than one I don't remember but I remember having him watch these baby Einstein videos and it was special music and sounds and colors and he was kind of mesmerized I would later read that there's no evidence at all that it does anything but at the time that seemed to be the thing to do so I was trying all these things to uh to stimulate him and 
and I taught him how to read. I thought young at like four years old, but apparently then I read there are kids reading at two years old and, uh, and reading was kind of interesting. He, he, he was, he got good at it because we, we would, I would teach him a lot and we would practice and, and, uh, and the problem was we couldn't really go that far. I couldn't give him, you know, too advanced of a book because he just didn't have the life experience. I couldn't give him a book, you know, about that had, uh, too much sarcasm or jokes about things that he just didn't know about. It just didn't make sense to him. And uh, romantic love, you know, he didn't know what that was yet. So there were these hard limits of of where uh, where I could go with him with uh, with reading. And so then I started teaching him math. And, uh, and by the way, I'm I might be uh, stop me if I'm if I'm if I'm giving too long of a history. No, <laughs> but, uh, I love it. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> I, uh, I started teaching him math at about four and a half years old. And, uh, and I, I always loved math. And, and, and eventually I wanted to teach him computer science and other things. Uh, but you know, I figured that was a good time to start teaching him. And we started with you know, like one plus one, two plus three. Uh, we would just do it initially on our walks to and from school. And, uh, and so I, you know, I'd have my fists and I'd say, if I had two marbles in one hand, three marbles in the other, and, you know, just some basic math, but it quickly grew, um, it grew pretty complex. Uh, and in fact, um, we got in even into complex numbers. Uh, I remember one, one question on our walks, he asked, uh, now, you know, we had, we had done this for a little while. Uh, he asked, Daddy, if I multiply two positive numbers, I get a positive number. And if I multiply two negative numbers, I get a positive number. So how do you take the square root of a negative number? And he, uh, and, and I said, oh, you know, great question. Uh, you know, let's talk about complex numbers and imaginary numbers. And, uh, but, but at that point, it, it, all of our math had been just from these walks. And so he didn't really, he didn't have the multiplication or the addition table memorized. So he, he knew how to do that stuff. He knew how to multiply but he didn't know what eight times eight was. He'd have to actually count it out in his head. And so then, you know, we, we, it got a little more serious. I'm like, okay, let's sit down 45 minutes a day, grew into an hour a day, every day. I didn't miss weekends, holidays, none of that. I, I wanted to make sure that he had that nourishment every day for, uh, for his mind. And, uh, and it was great. A math, math was different than, than other subjects like, like reading even because he didn't need life experience to go very far. We could go as far as we wanted, as long as he mastered the material that came before. We went from four and a half years old, a one plus one, to by the time he turned six, he was doing calculus. And he got pretty, uh, pretty advanced in calculus, too. Uh, but at some point, he got bored of calculus. Uh, not that he was ever really that excited about math, but... Uh, but it got to the point where I, I couldn't really get him to do the work. He would just get so distracted. It, he really was not into it. And, and I told him, Hey, you know, you should be so proud of yourself. This is, uh, this is, you know, incredible. Not many six year olds are able to do this, this level of math. And uh, let's, let's just stop this. And we'll do, we'll do so many other, there's so many other things I want to teach you. But he did not want to stop the math. Didn't want to do the actual work, put in the effort to it, but he, but he was getting a lot of attention from school and everybody, and, and he loved the attention. So well, he I wanted just, to keep advancing. Oh, I sorry, go ahead. Say, um, uh, if anyone's curious to see 
um, when you talk about tension, I just I remember these these really adorable and precocious YouTube videos. Is that is that what you mean yeah. by attention? That's kind of part of it. Yeah, he got attention uh, from people watching his uh, videos. But even at school, you know, now he's very advanced in math, and so math class they had to do some special things for him and and just the teachers, the other kids, uh, he, he loved it all. <laughs> loved the attention. Uh, yeah, he wanted me to take uh, videos of him and put them on YouTube, and we had some fun with that. Um, but uh, but for me, I didn't really care about the attention he was getting. I mean, I'm, I, I want him to be happy, of course, and that made him happy. But uh, and, and I didn't care what level he got to. I just really was caring that he was getting that intellectual exercise. So I didn't, I, I felt like we were, we were a little bit stuck. And I said, and so finally I said, let's, uh, let's, we don't have to stop math. Let's just put it on pause and we'll get back into it. Don't worry about it, but let's, uh, let's learn some programming and I'll teach you how to make things that, that you can utilize all that math you've learned to, to create cool, cool things like games. Uh, you, we will put physics in the games and so you can use some of that trigonometry and geometry and calculus and, and the calculations that will, will make these characters and other things you create come alive. And, uh, and he liked that idea. He was good with that. So we, I started teaching him programming and it was incredible. I, uh, I felt right away that this was even better than math because it was, it was that same logical thinking and mathematical thinking, but it was now something really engaging for him and he was excited about it. And, and so we, we started uh, learning how to code and, and early on uh, I thought every kid should be doing this. And I didn't see uh, many places teaching it, uh, certainly not schools, uh, but even, you know, uh, books or online courses that were for kids. And, and there were some books that said, you know, Python for kids and other, other books that, that were kind of geared for kids. And we bought them, but they were all really poor. Uh, we, we ended up buying one, uh, one book that was, I, I did like it and, and Ken did learn from it, a Ruby programming book called Learn to Program by Chris Pine. And uh, that was great, but it was talking about uh, beer throughout the book. And, and he would ask me, like, I thought you told me alcohol is bad. And, and, and he's talking about uh, even the code examples, even the code exercises were, were all around beer. And so, you know, clearly, clearly not meant for kids, but he yeah. had, uh, he had worded it in a way that, that made sense for kids, or at least, at least for my son. So, so at, at some point, uh, at around that time, I, uh, I, I wanted to teach kids how to code. I felt like the techniques that I used to get my son pretty advanced in math and, and in uh, computer science, uh, even though that was pretty early still for him in computer science, I felt like I could apply those things to any kid. Uh, but I didn't know that my, at that time, my son was the only kid I'd ever taught. And so I, uh, I was walking with my son one day and we entered a nearby near to our home uh, tutoring center. And I just uh, asked, what do you guys think of teaching kids to code? You get many people asking about that. And, and the owner said, no, we don't get people asking, but if you wanted to rent a desk, I have one here for a couple hundred dollars a month. I said, yeah, maybe I'd like to try that out. And we, uh, 
we grew very fast. And uh, you know, then I needed two desks, three desks, and eventually half the space. And, and, and of course, uh, eventually I, I paid him to leave. Amicable. Well, we, <laughs> we, he was, I think, happy for that. And that's the, uh, that's the genesis of U-Code. Wow. What a, what a beautiful story. I, yeah, I, I love how, yeah, you were, you have, you have such a clear, uh, compelling motivation for, for doing what you're doing. Um, and, and I, I love how, it, for me, it's, it's a particularly resonant story because it's, uh, it's very familiar to me because it's, it's similar to kind of how I, I came to this, um, not from like having a kid, of course, but but me me from more being the kid uh, that, that right. learned math and computer science uh, in this really wonderful way. Um, right. Um, so, um, uh, as you know, I went to this this program called IMAX uh, uh, from Intel Florida. That and when I was a kid, this after school program, and they they taught uh, math and computer science in these really cool ways. Um, uh, and, and I in in, the, in a similar spirit to the way that that you teach to your son. Um, and uh, for me, uh, they were in this intellectual tradition of um, uh, Jean Piaget and Seymour Papert and Alan Kay and Mitch Resnick and Brett Victor and Chris Granger. There's like a, for me, there's almost like a school of thought that I can point to um, right. where, where a lot of these ideas of mathematics and computer science and genetic epistemology, like they all kind of fit together um, in this beautiful way. And, um, and and I and my after school program, uh, the coding space was kind of like uh, very explicitly in this tradition, um, and so I, I'd be curious to know. And it, it seems to me like there's so much about what you do that's very similar to that tradition. And I'd be curious to know if you if you feel like you you exist in that school of thought. If you if there like other people, you mentioned other parenting books that you you really liked. If there were like uh, who who are your kind of like uh, epistemological or uh, like uh, pedagogical giants that you like kind of take from. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I haven't given that much thought. I've read some of the works of uh, some of the people you mentioned. Mindstorms was a was a big book by Seymour Papert. Um, uh, uh, I, definitely, there's a lot to be learned from all of those people. Uh, when when I uh, although although I'm not sure I agree with everything um, uh, when. When I taught uh, my son math, I uh, he, he he didn't get everything right away, and some things he really stumbled on, and and every time that he had a problem, I realized you know as, at first I didn't know how far to take it, I didn't know what exactly we were getting into, I didn't know uh, when to stop or to push him more or or that kind of thing. I just had this goal of of I just wanted the exercise for my son. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I realized every time that he couldn't get something, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't that it was too complex of a concept for a four or five or six-year-old to grasp. It was purely a memorization issue. And, uh, and so we would just play this memorization game where I would write down whatever it was that he was – Whatever, whatever information that he hadn't fully memorized that was preventing him from learning this new concept or solving some novel new kinds of problems. And I would write it down. And, and in the beginning, it was, it was literally just writing down the addition table or the multiplication table, but scrambling it around. 
and we'd I'd have a timer, and he'd have to recite something uh, e- either in one direction, and then I'd have him switch directions, or or I'd, I'd point things out, and then he'd have to tell me right away. And, uh, and he'd have to do it in a very short amount of time. And it was fun for him doing it that way. So because it was fun for him, he was willing to do it and, and put an effort in. So that was great. And, uh, and then once he memorized something fully, however we got around to doing that, usually this game, he, it was like he, he had absolutely zero trouble with, with these new problems that depended on, on that knowledge. And, and I felt like that was a key for, for any kid learning a concept. So I felt like memorization was really important. L- Did you later come to that on, on your I, own? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, you, came, so that you, was just, you just came uh, up with that on your own. Yeah. Right. Just experimenting with my son. It was uh, both of us. I, my son and I, we were, we were both, we both realized that neither of us kind of knew what, <laughs> what we were doing, but we, but Ken knew what I was trying to get for him. And, uh, and he, you know, he wanted to, he, he was a willing participant because he wants to do great things and he wants to be very successful. And, and so, uh, so we were trying to figure this out and, uh, and that worked. And every time he, he ran into trouble, it was a memorization issue. Later after starting U code, I would then dive in to the, all the, research and studies and literature on effective education, not specific to computer science or math, just in general, education psychology. And, uh, and, and it turns out there's a lot of research on memorization, and it does play a pivotal role in, in learning. And you can think of learning as really just knowledge acquisition. Even how we solve problems, how we understand uh, today, as I, as I understand how, how uh, most experts in this field uh, understand our, uh, what goes on in our brains when we solve problems is we look at a problem and we see back in our repository of all the problems we remember, how, which one does this new problem resemble most similarly? And then we, we see what the differences are and we try to apply those differences. So even solving problems is, is kind of an exercise in memory. Mm-hmm. And so, Interesting. I, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Did I? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I see. Um, the, I, I see this is a very nuanced thing. I, um, because so Piaget, the, the guy at the top of my uh, uh, lineage, uh, that I just kind of constructed artificially. He, he's the, he right. like genetic epistemology is one of his things. Uh, all new ideas in your brain must come from be built out of old ideas in your in your brain. And when I say like ideas, I mean like just gestalts, like uh, all all new structures in your brain need to be built from old structures in your brain. Um, right. And so I, I so I, I didn't um, so I, I yes um, all the like the experiences you have, the things you have are so important. Uh, and so I agree. So that's why it's just so important to teach your kids. Uh, that's why it's so important to have powerful ideas in the brains of, uh, of, your, of children so that they can learn new, more complicated ideas, uh, building them out of the, the other, like, fabric, the fabric of the powerful ideas that are already in their brain. Um, I think that's, yeah. like, a lot, that's, a, that's a lot of the, the key here. I, I have trouble with the word memorization because uh, as a kid, I had a lot of yeah. trouble with memorization, and it was very yeah. – um, it was the, the opposite of empowering to me. It sounds like it was, it, it, a memorization was very empowering for you and Ken, so that's great. Uh, for me, yeah. it was very um, – very disempowering, very like boring. Like it, it felt very like very uh, yeah, very boring, robotic, 
um, like like very forceful. Yeah. Uh, so well, it, you it, know, so, the, but, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll just interject something right there um, on the on the idea of memorization uh, being boring or or not very interesting. Um, one problem that that I think most kids deal with is uh, is how to memorize. Nobody really teaches that. Yeah. Schools expect us to memorize so much, and all we're ever really told is just repeat it over and over again in your mind. Yeah. And and it turns out that our brains don't really work that way, and that's not an efficient way at all to memorize something. And and it doesn't get stored long term, and it isn't easily recalled if you memorize that way, as opposed to much more effective techniques for memorization. So there's there are a lot of great techniques, and and I think it's incredibly valuable for, for people, not just kids, uh, to learn those techniques because it can have a, a huge impact on how you learn. I mean, if you think about everything that you learn, it's really about storing it in long-term memory. And if you have a significant better ability to do that, then you can learn so much more and, and faster and deeper and better. Yeah, so, yeah. I, lo- I, uh, I love this. So, like, are you talking, like, memory palaces, flashcards, like mnemonics, sure. like what? all that stuff yeah yeah uh, ch- uh chunking associations there, there's, there's so many techniques and association is a big one a vivid imagery uh, really uh really understanding how to tie back mm. new knowledge new information to prior prior memories and being able to recall that effectively and we actually ran uh, memorization camps at UCode. we didn't this past year this past summer uh because we were we were busy with many other things and we wanted to refine that. Um, but, uh, but the memorization camps were amazing because, well, first of all, uh, they were pretty intense. We, it was like studying, thinking hard, nonstop all day for five days a week. And, and afterwards the kids didn't want to leave. And so wow. many kids and especially parents were asking, when's the next one? Is there like part two or level two? And we didn't have anything created yet. Um, and so we thought, okay, maybe we should really uh, expand this. And the reason why it's, it was pretty exciting for, for kids and, and parents was we would start the first day doing our baseline tests. So we would ask the kids, uh, we're definitely going off on tangents. I know I want to get back to the original point of who, who are my heroes, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, th- but this, is, this was really great. We would do these tests of, you know, how many uh, memorize these these digits as many as you can in a row, and we would you know show them a three, mm. a seven, a nine, a two, and and some kids you know could memorize four digits in a row, some kids six, some kids only three, and you know it was uh, roughly around those those numbers, um, and you know every once in a while a kid would would do would be pretty amazing seven, eight, or nine digits in a row, uh, but by the by the end of the camp, we, we did that test. We did uh, names and faces, and we did uh, verbs and adjectives and other other tests, memorization tests. And by the end of the camp, you know, it, w- it wasn't five digits in a row. They could memorize 30 digits in a row. Wow. And, and that was wow. just incredible for kids. And they felt powerful. They felt like they could go back to school. And this was a summer uh, camp. And so they felt like they're going to go back to school in the fall and they're just wow. going to have such a better time in school. Yeah, I bet they so, did. So, 
Yeah, that, that was uh, that was exciting. I think memorization is is really important for for learning, and I think mo- I think uh, you know it gets kind of a bad rap because yeah. people think memorization. Oh, you're just you're just memorizing the solutions, or just memorizing things. You're not really understanding the problem and really understanding how to solve these things. And uh, and while it's true, you don't want to just memorize the solution and not understand what it's about. Memorize it word for word. Uh, memorization actually is pretty critical to learning in that. You need to know how to memorize effectively and uh, and and have being able to recall uh, recall things that the new the problem you're trying to solve depends on um, can make all the difference in the world, not only in your ability to solve it but even in in your in uh, what's called self efficacy your your feeling your confidence that you can solve problems like this mm, totally yeah well so and that can help yeah. I- yeah, of course. Oh my goodness. Self-efficacy, that's huge. That that's like I feel like that's almost the most important thing to teach. Everything else kind of is secondary to that. Well, not entirely, not entirely. It it needs to be backed by by like um like I guess uh like the difference between confidence and arrogance. Like confidence is backed by actual skill, arrogance isn't. Uh like it needs to be backed by actual skill, but um but but yes, yeah, so right. that's it's such a key piece, the emotions. Um but oh man, you you have me thinking about so many different thoughts. The one that comes to mind first is um I wonder if the words you're using, memorization, um, like I, I think I, I have different words for similar concepts, uh, like the, the right. memorizing numbers. But to me, that sounds like uh, I would call that expanding working memory, um, yeah. which is, uh, is, a, is like a really exciting phrase for me because um, I was talking to who? It might have been Emmanuel. Uh, no, it might have been um, 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 Christopher Anand. Um, uh, who, who I was talking to last week and I introduced you to, um, he was talking about yeah, why he you, loves teaching. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, two, two of the only people, or at least the only people that I know of, but potentially the only people in the world who teach Elm the kids. Uh, they, they need to talk. <laughs> so. Um, so he talked about why he loved teaching Elm the kids is because um, working memory of, of people is seven plus or minus two. And so uh, you need to, you, you can only fill working memory with so many pieces of information so the simpler the programming language is um the the more kids can do with it uh because they they, like each of those seven those those seven slots of working memory uh really has to be utilized to the fullest you can't like waste them on like unnecessary syntax and and things Mm -hmm. like that so but if you can expand the working memory of a kid to more than seven like oh my god like like then right uh then then yeah then they could they can program they can do a lot more things that's that's really exciting um and then yeah, yeah like um talking about uh like um for me yeah i like memorization is an interesting uh phrase given the way you use it um like i yeah i think of memorization as more as like flashcards drill like drill drilling as opposed to like uh increasing the ability for students to assimilate new ideas through like sure. all that yeah I, I i would yeah i yeah i put a different words on it but um but the i understand kind of where you're coming from and i I'm really glad we kind of went down this rabbit hole because I didn't quite understand how thoughtful you were about the word memorization. Yeah, memorization, just being able to recall something that you previously learned. So, uh, yeah, the, the flashcards example is um, maybe repetition type of memorization or drill and kill or however, however you want to Well, so um, I can give you an example and, that and, I think is – sorry. Oh, I, I just want to point out that uh, you mentioned expanding working memory. Um, yeah. I don't know that that uh, these techniques 
alter your brain to have a bigger a bigger working memory uh, number of bytes or <laughs> or size, uh, or is just um, these techniques kind of uh, allow you to access or store and access long-term memory quicker, or I don't exactly know yeah. what's going on inside your mind, Ooh, but, but it is I expanding can... working memory in the sense of being able to memorize things quickly. Great. Okay, great. I, I actually uh, haven't read, read a book on this that explained it. Uh, like, I don't know if it's true, but I, well, it seems I've read a book on this uh, recently. So I have, a, I have a good theory that I, that I can kind of go into it for a second. Um, and then, then I'll give you the example I wanted to say. So I read this book, uh, Peak by uh, Anders Ericsson. I don't know if you've heard about it no um no, no okay so um uh, how about outliers on malcolm gladwell yes of course okay great so the malcolm gladwell outlier 10,000 hour rule so um so peak by anders erickson so anders erickson did the original research um uh, i think it was also um brian thompson was his co-author i i i'm sorry to whoever co-wrote that book i, I always i always forget uh, co-authors yeah. but anyways um uh um the, so this book peak was, is like basically uh, outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, but written by the original researchers. And it's just amazing. Like this book, I became obsessed with it. I emailed, I emailed Anders, uh, the author, like the minute I finished it, I like wrote him like this really long email about like how much I love the book and he emailed me back right away. Uh, and yeah, it was just a really fun book. So anyways, uh, I highly recommend it. It's very like empowering. Yeah, I'll um, definitely read it. Yeah. Great. Um, and so one of the things it talked about is, uh, so one of the research, one of the things that Anders did um, himself, one of the pieces of research he did was um, he wanted to see how much he could expand working memory um, mm -hmm. for, and he had a very simple experimental design. And, and at the time, um, seven plus or minus two was like sacrosanct, and nobody had really gone past like twenty or thirty in the entire world. Like like the record for the mm -hmm. world was like twenty or thirty, um, mm -hmm. and. And he worked with just like an average kid on a college campus, and they just kept working at it using deliberate practice, uh, a term I'm sure you're familiar mm -hmm. with. And um, yep. And he, and and this this one random guy was able to get to like 200, and then like the guy after him mm -hmm. was like up to 300, and then and it, and it just like there's no limit, there's no end in sight. Kept like, going. We're, we're, right. <laughs> it kept going, and like and he was able to prove, uh, and so like um, that that it's first prove that's possible, but then um, so your question of like what's going on in the brain, so you're right, there isn't a way to expand working memory past, I think, seven plus or minus two. The thing that changes is the way you, you, you learn how to represent um, these numbers, which I'm sure you have an intuitive sense for. Uh, like all the, tr the mm -hmm. quote unquote tricks that kids use to memorize more numbers, they mm -hmm. chunk them and they associate them and they image, all of those right. tricks are just encoding, they're, they're compression algorithms, like the same <laughs> things we use in computer science, um, but uh, we teach kids to kind of use them in their brain. Right. Um, so, so yeah, it's a good point. I don't know if if those tricks would help, like, will necessarily help <laughs> uh, when learning like a programming language like Elm, because I don't know if you'd use these encoding tricks to like remember two different parts of the problem you're working on at the same time. Uh, so that's a good, it's a good point. Uh, I don't I don't know if it'd actually help, but it is it is well, nonetheless exciting. Um, yeah, well, yeah. how it helps and what we what we strongly encourage, and we've actually played with it in our LMS too, um, is making these associations and. Uh, and how it helps is learning the material in the first place. So it may not be necessarily that, you know, you're working with eight variables or constant. I, I, we try to steer kids away from variables, uh, but, uh, but constants or, or data and, or, or names of functions, and you need to have, like, all these ten things in your head at once to be able to compute the result, but just learning it initially and learning, you know, what, how, how functions work and 
especially when you get into trickier things like the uh, like the more complicated type systems of functional functional languages, uh, like with applicatives and monads and how all that works. And um, knowing that knowing that at the tip of your fingers uh, makes everything so much easier. And so, totally, uh, totally. Uh, even in the even in the basics of, of computer programming, you um, just being able to learn it and not forgetting what you had previously learned, being able to really have mastered uh, in a in a relatively short amount of time for a kid, uh, allows yeah. us to go very deep in computer science. Yeah. Well. So uh, yeah, I, I love it. So here, I want to give you that example. That like a concrete example from that I remember from my childhood that, that I can kind of illustrate mm -hmm. the way I see what you're calling memorization. But, but I'm curious if, if I'm getting it wrong, so I'd like you to correct me if I am. So mm -hmm. um, when I, I, I did Logo at IMAX in South Florida when I was like 12, and um, I remember when I like had to figure out on my own how to make a circle in the Logo Turtle mm -hmm. program. And so you, you imagine yourself with ink on your shoes and like there's a white piece of paper mm -hmm. on the floor and you, and you want to draw a circle. Like how would you do it? Um, and so eventually I think the way I intuited it, it was, I kind of thought about how like, I, I've been drawing a lot of polygons and that, and that wasn't by accident, that was by design. I've been drawing a lot of polygons and I was, and I was kind of seeing how the more sides you add, the more circle it looks. Um, and mm. so I, I came to the conclusion, eventually I came to, oh, if you just go up a little bit and then turn a little bit and then do that a bunch of times, you get something that looks a lot like a circle. Uh, and right. so I, um... Uh, and then I would make more complicated curves and they, they, they go left and they go right. And whenever I would think about how to do things like this, I would anthropomorphize the turtle, imagine myself in the, in the turtle's shoes on the screen. And I would sometimes even get up, stand up and, and walk around and kind of imagine and use my, my body sense to relate it to computer, um, the, the computer, which is exactly what Seymour Papert wanted me to, to learn how to do because that's how mathematicians think. Right. And that's what I encourage yeah. my students to do at the coding space. So. Um, and then right. when I got to calculus, he, talk, he talked about school, that in the, in the uh, yeah, sorry totally. to interrupt. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. He talked about Go it ahead. in Mindstorms. Yeah. <laughs> so and yeah, yeah, yeah. that's why for me, Mindstorms was a relevation because you know, I'll, well, I'll explain. So when I got to high school and and explain what a derivative was, you know, you go up a little bit and you go over a little bit so you can kind of figure out how curves work. I was like, Oh, I know mm -hmm. what that is. I've walked on curves like for dozens of hours. <laughs> like I, I just needed the word for that. Like I, I already knew what that is. So like, like no one else, everyone else in the class was, was so super confused and to everyone else I looked yeah. like a genius. Like I looked like I was just born with an understanding of derivatives, <laughs> but I knew that it was like grounded in, in this thing that I was doing when I was in, like uh, when I was 12 that nobody else was doing. Uh, it was like, and right. so I would have never said that it was because I like memorized turtle. Like I wouldn't have used the word memorization there, but it definitely is a recall of an experience going on. Right. Um, so that, so, and then just to finish the, the story to connect the dots, um, and then I'll curious to get your take on on whether or not that's what you call memorization. Uh, so when I got to college and I was given the essay learnable programming, which led me to uh, Seymour Papert's uh, Mindstorms, it was like, oh my god! Like he he did that on purpose. Like he was trying to <laughs> mathematical ideas through a programming language, and so he designed logo. Like wow! Like and it worked. He did it like for I, you exactly that way? Yeah, I was. I, math was my worst favorite subject in school because I hated memorizing things. I was so bad at it. And I, I really thought I was just dumb. I thought I was a dumb kid. I thought I was bad at math. Uh -huh. I, I visually, I visually remember arguing with my mom. I'm bad at math. She's like, no, you, she's like, uh -huh. I'm, she's like, I'm average. Your, your father's very good. There's no way you're bad. Um, and I was like, no, I'm bad. I'm trust me, I'm bad, mom. I'm like the worst in the class. 
And then like I graduated high school, I got the award for the best math student in, in the, in the, in the school. Like, and, and for me, it's very clearly Seymour Papert that like an IMAX that made a difference. Um, and I feel like not many people get this experience of being on both sides of, of, of the, the bell curve, like being at the bottom and then at the top in, in the, like in just like a, a matter of a year, really, it, it was, the transformation was very quick for me. So, wow, it's amazing. So that's, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, I'll pause there. I'm curious to get a sense of if that's kind of how you think about um, memorization. Uh, like it's more like it's richer than like memorizing facts. It's like memorizing, like it's remembering experiences almost. Is that how you think about it? Or, or sure. Am I... Yeah. Well, if you experience something, if any kind of, I, I think any kind of emotional um, uh, impact something has on you, you're going to memorize it better. And, uh, and if you experience something um, the way you describe, yeah, it sounds like it's, it's a, it, it was great for you to be able to memorize that way. And you were able to recall those things and associate them with others, uh, transfer that knowledge to other areas and other subjects uh, very well. Sounds like it was incredible for you. I think a few things happened for you there. I think not only did you, uh, did you internalize what was going on and, and effectively memorize it, in a way that allowed you to transfer that to other, uh, to other skills. But I think it, you also developed um, self-efficacy. You, you developed this, yes. this yes. knowledge that, well, if I just really, uh, you know, learn something or focus on it or, or treat it a different way or think about it another way, I will get it and I will be great at it. And, yes. and that confidence probably uh, helped you quite a bit. Oh yeah. So, uh, Career? Yeah, totally. So, so in eighth grade, I um, wanted to get a certain grade in history because I wanted to be in like honors history in ninth grade, and my grade just wasn't there. And right. the teacher said, "You know, I don't, see, I don't see any way that you're going to make this happen." Um, right. And so I was like, "Wait a second! Like, through computer science, I'm learning, you know, to look at problems different ways. Like, I was starting to get yeah, the self-efficacy. And I was like, "Wait a second! Like, my my one of my close friends, Jacob, does really well in history. I wonder if if he'd kind of show me how he takes notes, how he studies for tests." I, sure. I literally went to his house. I had my mom right. drive me to his house. We spent like 45 minutes together, if that. And I got like <laughs> right. perfect grades in history ever, ever since then. And it's just like, it never yeah. would have occurred to me that like the strategy by which you study and take notes, like that there's yeah. even a strategy there. Like I thought it was just right. like everyone you're just smart or not. did their best. <laughs> yeah, you're smart or right. not. Exactly, exactly. And okay, and that, and that brings me to... Yeah. My next thing that I, that, I, that I have been meaning to ask this whole conversation, it feels to me like the way you think about raising your son and, and other, other people's children, it, there's like this implicit underlying assumption you have that, that, I, really, that I also have, but it's, it's rare. So I want to make sure that it, that it exists or, or, or feel, where we, feel out where we differ on this one. Um, it, it almost feels like you, you see that it's all mundane. Like you were saying that, like, there's, there's nothing too hard for a six-year-old. Like a, a, anything that's complex is just made up of mundane parts. And if you just learn all the parts, then the, the complicated thing becomes yes. mundane itself. So, um, yeah, do you, do you believe that like, uh, like every, every child can be a genius with like the right education or, or is there like some genetic components yeah. or some magical component or, or do you really truly believe that it's just like the right kind of practice? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, uh, th- is it uh, uh, Sal- Salman Khan from Khan Academy that said uh, that he teaches? He tells his kids he never tells his kids that they're smart. 
He just tells mm. them, he praises them for effort. Uh, I think, I think that's what I read. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, uh, th- there's definitely a lot of, uh, a lot of research behind this, um, around, well, I mean, self-advocacy is the whole idea that, that just put in more effort and you will get the results you want in terms of your academic achievement. And, uh, and I do believe that. I do believe that, uh, that prob- probably the gap between somebody not so smart and somebody very smart is narrower than we think or than society typically thinks. You know, we, mm. as, we as a society think that there are some people that are geniuses that are 100 times smarter than, than other people. And, and I'm, sure that, I'm sure that some people's brains are more capable than other people's brains, but probably not by that much. It's uh, probably a, a huge, this is my, um, my intuition and based on some things I've read, but I'm not an expert in this. Um, but I believe that, uh, that some kids just stumble upon the right way to memorize something. Or, or a more effective way to memorize something, and that helps them tremendously in uh, in learning, and uh, and in and in of course remembering facts and remembering things, and uh, and they're seen as geniuses, and and mm-hmm. they they stumble upon other great great things, you know how to take feedback uh, properly, you know there, there's a whole there's a lot of research and in, in how how we give feedback to kids or adults too, but. Uh, but if you give feedback at the right time in the right way, it can be incredibly powerful. And the, the outcomes, the effects of that are enormous. And some kids uh, can, can deal with that. It can deal with getting feedback or ask for feedback in a way and, and just really prosper because of that. And they just stumbled upon that. And, or maybe they've been taught that at a, at a young age by somebody and that stuck with them. And so they're, they're seen as geniuses because they, uh, they are doing very well, uh, very well at school, or they're able to learn something very effectively and be very good at something. And other kids just happen not to stumble upon those things and just struggle because they, all of their memorization is just this rote, repetitious uh, style that, that is not so effective, but it's all, the only way they know how to do it. And so they, they work really hard or they don't work hard and they just don't achieve that much. That's my uh, my feeling on the subject. Um, yeah. Having said that, yeah, and, and having said that, I, I I tell my kids they're they're so incredibly smart all the time. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing there um, because uh, <laughs> because I know there's a whole school of thought that you're not supposed to say that to your kids because then they'll think um, that. Uh, I'm just born with this. And when they hit upon uh, subjects or, or material or something they're trying to learn and, and that it's not so easy, then they panic. And then they feel like they're, they're dumb, they're, they're not capable, and, uh, and they don't progress. And they don't try and they don't look at it another way and they don't, you know, persevere and figure it out. Um, yep. And uh, yep. luckily I don't think that's – the case so far with my kids so hopefully i haven't done them damage by <laughs> by praising them that way yeah well, yeah Pra- praise is a complicated subject I've, I've thought a lot about it it's, it's hard to do right um I, there's a lot of uh, interesting writing on, on the subject uh, praise praise is tough um but yes i i i 
I know at least one of your kids, and and Ken Ken seems to be all right. I don't, I don't think he, I, I don't think you have to be too too worried. It's very sweet how you uh how how like the the, the bar at which you hold yourself to uh, as a parent is is like it's uh remarkable. So yeah, well done. Um, well on Thank that you. on that like note, I, I was kind of wondering um like some of the words and phrases and way you talk, I think like give off like almost helicopter parent vibes in in that like. In, in how much you're focused on like your on being a good parent, like the, the amount of attention yeah. and care and focus is like almost helicopter parent, um, w- which is a term with negative connotations. Um, but like, yeah, um, I think a lot of times helicopter parents c- come at it from a place of fear when I when I don't get that sense at all from you. So I'm curious, kind of where you where you come at this from. Like, did did your parents raise you really well? Like. Uh, like where? Like why did you like? Why were you inspired to read all these parenting books? Like what was it? Um, where is it coming from? Yeah. Uh, so my parents, um, they were absolutely not helicopter parents in any sense of that word. Um, mm. I, I mean, you know, I, I maybe I grew up in a different time when uh, you know parents just let their kids go go out and do whatever they want and come back in the evening and uh, you know at very young ages. Um, extremely young by today's standards, like, like child abuse, young <laughs> kind of, uh, kind of levels. Um, and, uh, and, and that's kind of how I, I grew up. Um, I, so I definitely did not get that from my parents. I, I am, uh, not ashamed to admit that I am obsessed with my kids. Um, why? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> my, my, uh, my son was born. That was my first child. And yeah, that's, that's just what filled my head. And I couldn't stop thinking about how to do thing do right by him. It was, uh, it was quite, a, I'm sure all parents feel this when they have their first child, that what a miracle that is and how, how special that is. And, and you want to, uh, you want to do everything in your power to, to do right by them. So that that just stuck with me, and then I had my daughter, and uh, and I, I continue to be obsessed with them. So uh, um, so I, I am, I guess, a helicopter parent in that in that sense. At times, um, at times, I'm really uh, pushing them to learn a lot. Uh, other times, I'm not. I feel like oh, maybe I'm doing maybe maybe I'm I'm pushing too much on them, and I need to let them relax. So then I let them relax, and then and then you know, kind of comes in waves of what, what I think uh, if I'm doing too little or too much. I, I took my son to a movie the other day, uh, a week ago. I thought it was a good movie to take him to, but I, I didn't, I didn't even watch the trip. Uh, I watched a part of the trailer. I think I, I know I saw photos and I, I read some stuff and it, it seemed to be about, um, uh, a, a family in Florida near Disney World, and uh, it was with like a little girl, and it got like incredible reviews. And I'm like, oh, hey, can let's see this movie. And it turned out to be not so appropriate for <laughs> for an 11 year old. Um, like the the mom, uh, I don't want to give away the movie, uh, but <laughs> uh, but it was it was kind of not appropriate, and the mom was was really not not a great mom, <laughs> and. Uh, um, although I'm sure she loved her kid, like in the movie, they, how they portrayed her, but, uh, but she had problems. And so after the movie, uh, you know, we talked about it and, and I said, you know, uh, hopefully I'm better than that. And, and, uh, and I asked what, uh, what can I, uh, 
how can I improve as a father? And, uh, and my son was like, oh, no, you're great. You do everything perfect. I'm like, no, no, come on, come on. What, what's one thing I could be doing better? And he said, you could push me harder. Wow. So, uh, so now, now I'm going to try to take him up on that and <laughs> try, try to push him harder. Wow. Cool. Yeah, that's, that's great when it, when it comes from kids like that. That's amazing. Yeah, that, I think that, that kind of uh, really dispels the fear that you're, you're the one pushing him. You know, that, that's really amazing. That, that's, that, yeah, that somehow, yeah, that you, you like cracked the nut on the intrinsic motivation here. That's, that's awesome. Uh, that's, yeah, that's not I mean, easy to do. Yeah, I don't know that I've cracked anything. I, I, uh, sometimes I feel like I'm a great parent. Other times I feel like I'm ruining my kids' lives <laughs> or just doing everything <laughs> wrong. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I've, you know, running Ucode, I've met just thousands of parents. And some parents would do everything wrong by, by how, how you grow up thinking a parent should behave with their kids. And their kids are incredible. And huh. they grow up to, you know, just they're, they're doing incredible in school, just thoughtful, ethical, great kids. And some kids, some parents seem to do everything right. And their kids uh, have problems. So I, uh, hmm. I really don't know what the right thing to do is. I just, uh, um, I, I just, I, my parenting style is I, I give, I, I spoil my kids as much as I can. And uh, and hope for the best, and and try to really yeah. push academics on them too, <laughs> or push push it yeah, to yeah. you know reasonable levels. Yeah, yeah. I okay, great. I, this is this is really fun, and then and we went uh, kind of on on fun tangents. Um, I, I think maybe <laughs> for um, for maybe the audience's sake, we can we can try and bring it back to coding a little bit. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. talk. Well, about, you asked uh, me originally. Uh, you asked me originally about. Um, <clears throat> heroes yeah and uh and i and i brought up uh some of the things that uh, i brought up memorization and then later in uh when i started ucode reading up on on the literature and studies and research behind uh, effective education and uh and there you know what was surprising to me was there's so much research on effective education and educational psychology and it seemed like um, some of this, I was reading some of these, some of these books and, and it was like, wow, you give feedback in this way, kids will learn tw- the, the outcomes had effect sizes of two, which is huge. And we, which, which just means that kids learn so much more effectively in this little change, in this little thing that you can do. And, and that never happened to me in college or in high school or middle school or elementary school. Nobody was teaching. Nobody was doing these things that have been well researched, and I, I felt like this. This is uh, all this research is going where, and who's taking advantage of it? Uh, because it seems like if everybody did, if all teachers and all institutions and books and places you learn online uh, really listen to this research, people would be so well educated, <laughs> and uh, and so. Um, so one uh, one person who used to work at UCode um, really uh, really turned me on to Richard Mayer's books and studies, and uh, he's a he's a professor out of UC Santa Barbara, and now he's uh, he's an advisor to, to UCode, and he is he is great. Um, he is 
He has done some, some really incredible research that we take to heart in everything we do here at UCode, and, and I think that it's produced incredible results. Cool, yeah. Could you give me maybe some specific examples of like, uh, like an insight that, that uh, his name is Richard uh, yeah. like, uh, communicates? Um, uh, let's see. Like in how, uh, yeah, and how you apply it like in a programming language context, like a yeah, through science education context. Yeah, so um, he has one book uh, which which he updates uh, every I think couple of years or so. I actually don't know the cadence, but uh, updates regularly uh, with another author, Ruth Clark, called "E-Learning and the Science of Instruction." And there he talks a lot about uh, e-learning and learning learning over a, uh, through a computer. And he uh, and he talks about um, this principle of of dual channels. So, you know, we uh, we learn um, through typically uh, how we've evolved or how we uh, how we, how we learn in uh, you know from from a child is we hear and see things. And so if you can teach uh, through both channels at the same time, then that can be actually really effective. And so we try to do that through, uh, through our videos. And so, you know, we talk while we show examples in certain ways, but you have to be careful not to have extraneous graphics. And, and, and you know, there, there's a lot of, a lot of things in, in how we do that, um, but that's something that we, we take very seriously. Uh, mm. Yeah, I definitely encourage reading that book in particular is, is great for teaching computer science because you typically are teaching computer science over a computer as you're going to be uh, doing your exercises and, uh, and your projects on the computer. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm curious about to uh, ask a question about, so... Uh, the title of his book, "The Word Instruction," is, is, in, is in the book. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in my circles, in like the Papert School of Thought, that, that's kind of like a bad word. Um, uh, like teach, uh, teaching kids things through instruction uh, is like kind of the the way I try not to do it. I try to do it through constructionism. And I'm, I'm potentially this is just a semantic game, and we we see things the same way. So I um, wanted to kind of put that out there. And um, yeah, so. Uh, and, and like, just to give you a sense, and I'll kind of like counter um, instructionism with constructionism uh, um, in regards to how we do it at the coding space, my after school program. Yeah. So um, we, our goal is to like teach kids how to learn arbitrary things. Uh, computer science is just the medium through which we teach kids how to learn things. Um, mm -hmm. And so it would, so like we think it would be counter to our like mission to teach kids computer science because. Um, if we instruct them in computer science, like that, that gives them lots of an opportunity to like practice learning things on their own. Um, and so um, we, we, yeah, we, we like deliberately don't teach anything and then kind of like give kids problems, um, which are, which come in the form of projects, like make a floppy bird game. And um, we give like maybe a few hints, but it's, it's generally like figured out on your own. Um, and then when kids get stuck, they, they raise their hand and a teacher will come over to help them. But the teacher still won't teach them anything. The teachers uh, only respond uh, Socratically asking questions so that the knowledge really comes from the student. Right. Um, 
And so, yeah, yeah, we're we're like trying to be the opposite of an instructionist. Um, so I'm curious to get a sense of how you, uh, how your philosophy, it, it like compares and contrasts with ours. Yeah. So um, there's there's definitely a lot of research on on this subject too, and you know if you go too far in one direction of uh, letting kids figure out struggle, uh, figure out how to how to do something. Uh, the problem is they don't learn it that effectively because when they do figure it out, uh, they don't really understand how they came about it. And so, um, so they came up with a solution and it worked and, and that's great, but they didn't necessarily, they can't necessarily replicate that or transfer that in other areas. And, uh, and if you give them too much help, um, then, uh, then they haven't necessarily uh, memorized that how to do it and they've just kind of followed your example and they can't duplicate that either uh, or transfer that elsewhere. And so there's some happy medium there. And typically the, uh, the term is guided discovery. You don't want pure discovery where kids are discovering the solutions, uh, but you want to guide them and you want to point out or have them explain, which is, uh, which is another effective way for them to learn, uh, how they arrived at these conclusions. And yeah, so I, we, that, we try to yeah. go ahead. Yeah, no, I, that that distinction makes makes sense. I um, would just caveat it like uh, um, like a, a tiny bit. Um, the 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 side of the spectrum that like um, where you give kids too much freedom um, mm -hmm. and and like have them fully discovered on their own. I think the the risk there is that. Um, like if you ask them to like kind of like reprove all of math, like it's you know that takes so much time and energy and like you know like it's hard to ask them to to like do all of mathematics, like prove all of mathematics with which took hundreds of years, you know, in an, in like an hour after school class. Right. And so it's just like so for me, it's it's less well, of a risk yeah. that they'll get the they'll find something that works and not know how to explain it. It's, the risk is more that they'll never find anything that works. Um, sure, I but mean, I yeah, think but but something that's not feasible. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. for me, that's but but even giving uh, I, I them something that's feasible, and uh, giving them something where they struggle at it for an hour or two, and they eventually get it, um, that can be problematic, because even if they do get it, they might not have have understood or remembered how they got it, and how to how to use that problem solving technique or how to or how to uh, how to use that specific technique that they that they that they figured out again? I it, that that I actually I think we we disagree on that um, that claim. I think uh, when a kid invents a method of solving a problem on their own through struggling, that is like at least in my experience when I when I figured out things on my own through struggling, that it felt like the best way to learn a thing. Uh, in some ways, it felt it feels for, like the only way to learn a thing. For example, if. Uh, if you're if you're trying to teach a kid an algorithm and they uh and 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 how you do that is you tell them to solve this problem and to solve that problem they would need to they would need to be maybe you're teaching them how to sort uh how to sort uh objects and they they uh they stumble around they they spend you know an hour on it figuring you know uh, writing their little algorithm and it and and they need to query a, a certain property of the object 
and that tells them you know some value that they can sort by and their code gets kind of kind of messy and they they play with it play with it and then they get it have they really learned to sort uh, really learned a, a good sorting algorithm um, you know in the end they they may have gotten that to sort but you ask them you know a week later uh, sort something else in a similar way and they've got to kind of duplicate all that over again they haven't remembered they haven't understood you know how to generalize that uh, that whole mechanism yeah 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 without somebody I, I'm with you. and so so one technique is to you know, have them struggle with it, and hopefully they get it. And whether they get it or not, still point out to them, look, this yeah. is what's going mm-hmm. on, and this is how, yeah, yeah. how to do it. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah, the okay, guided sure, yeah. discovery. Totally, totally. We're on the same page. We're on the same page. I'm, I'm reflecting on, like, um, when I was learning recursion at IMAX as a kid, I remember, um, like, as an example, uh, I would, like, have to figure out these really tough challenges on my own. And, um, mm-hmm. and when I would get them, it would be, like, magical like the self-efficacy would go through the roof and then also i like really understood these concepts because i like felt like i invented them for myself um but there were times yeah like for example i, I would build a recursive solution and i would have like the base case the terminating condition and then i'd have like the recursive condition and and i wouldn't uh, in my teacher's words his name was ken um i wouldn't quote like trust the recursion like i would like handle a lot more cases than just the base case and he was like well why handle right. cases? why not four why not five why not six I was like, great idea. And I would like add more cases. Like, no, 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 it's the opposite. You need less cases. Um, but like that, those conversations where like he pointed that out, um, yeah, without those conversations, right. I totally agree with you. I, I wouldn't have like, like that conversation like really helped me like generalize, oh, like you have to trust the recursion. Like that insight I wouldn't have had without him. So I, we're on the same page. I'm, I'm glad we, we kind of, uh, we, we kept talking here. It, it's funny how we use different words. Uh, you and I in this conversation are using different words to describe almost the same things uh, uh, semantically. Right, right. Yeah, maybe we, uh, maybe, maybe you put enough uh, thought and effort and practice into teaching and we all come to the same conclusions with different phrases. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, I don't know if everyone comes to the same conclusions, but it is funny how similar my conclusions are to your conclusions, which are similar to um, Christopher Annan's in Canada and to Emmanuel Schnauzer at Bootstrap. Uh, like at least the four of us and and the IMAX people, there are, there are, there's a. Um, I guess it's no coincidence that my conclusions are similar to the IMAX people's conclusions, but um, it is funny how a lot of people who have never talked uh, come to the same place. Um, and David Deutsch, this philosopher, I like um, he. He he talks about how um you know the quote um um uh, gene, uh, a great minds think alike um mm-hmm. he says like the the reason that is is because like uh, truth and beauty like are like difficult things to arrive at and so like when you when you arrive at the, like an idea that's a beautiful good idea um like chances are other people will be arriving at that idea those ideas as well because like. There are like there are millions of bad ideas, but there there are fewer good ideas. So it's like it's it's not crazy that that, that a lot of people would arrive at, at the good ones. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I mean some of this stuff is is not so intuitive, um, and I would not normally even the memorization wasn't so intuitive. Although that's what uh, my son and I did did discover on our own. Um, but uh, but some things. Um, some things it, it was really worth it for me to to read and 
and understand and learn how to teach uh, more effectively. Um, I, I would not have necessarily come to the conclusion that uh, self-efficacy is so important uh, for kids. Now it makes sense. And now I'm putting that into practice that, that has made sense. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think part of it too is uh, we all have a, a deep passion for teaching effectively. And so that draws us to all these other books and studies that other people have, uh, have, have led the way in terms of, uh, of what works and what doesn't. And so so uh, that's why we probably come to a lot of similar conclusions. Yeah, there you go. Self-efficacy is not just for kids. It's for adults, too. <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah. Um, cool. So um, I, I want to go maybe a little bit even more technical. So um, yep. as, I, as I've talked about on this podcast before, my, my curriculum is pretty straightforward. We we have a uh, – we, we keep kids in scratch for a while. Then, then we go to uh, my programming language framework, Woof, JS, and then we do web programming. And that's, that's, that's all we do at the coding space. Um, you guys, I know, have tried a lot of different languages, technologies, frameworks. Like, you, 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 you do a lot more, um, and you've experimented with a lot more. So I'd be curious to get a sense of how you, how you think about curriculum design, how you, like, lay out the languages, how, how, when kids move between them, um, what, what, like, languages you're experimenting with now, all that, how you think about all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll try to be a little more brief, uh, but I'll give you a little history of, of uh, what we've done at UCode. I started uh, Code with Ruby because that's what I had taught my son at that point, and it seemed to work really well. Ruby has a very simple syntax that, uh, that I thought kids would be able to grasp very easily, and they were, and it works great. Um, I liked it a lot. Uh, we, we would go from Ruby to then learning Ruby on Rails, which is, if, if you don't know, just a framework on top of Ruby for developing websites. And, and that worked really well too. And after that, I taught kids Clojure, which is a uh, scheme-like language um, uh, built on the JVM. And, uh, and that was good too. It was definitely a struggle because I then was trying, I was really trying to get kids to, uh, to think about <clears throat> things functionally or mathematically to not use variables or loops uh, aside from recursive loops and, uh, and to, use, to use the whole uh, immutable mechanisms uh, built into Clojure. Clojure does allow you, it is not a purely functional language and there are, uh, there are ways to, to, to do things in an impure fashion in Clojure, but, uh, but I really wanted, wanted kids to learn that, that uh, functional nature. And, and that was a struggle for kids. And even um, our brightest students, it was, uh, it was a struggle, which I, I thought was necessary and valuable. And, you know, learning to code that way was, was important. And I, I was a functional programming advocate back then. I just felt, uh, you know, that was kind of last in what you learned in programming languages uh, because that was more difficult, took more of an investment. And then I met uh, uh, Emmanuel Scanzer who he's the creator of Bootstrap. And, uh, oh, I didn't realize that you got these ideas from him. Interesting. Okay, cool. Keep going. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I just uh, a, a time. So I just want to say it's a relevant, uh, like a, 
I, I spoke with him an hour ago, so um, it's kind of a, huh. a funny functional programming teaching kids day for me. <laughs> Anyways, continue. Huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually was at a an event for teachers at the time, and somebody uh, that I was working with, uh, uh, I was at the booth, and she was uh, just roaming around, and she went into Manu Skander's kind of presentation to a bunch of teachers, and you know, telling them about Bootstrap. And she's like, you. She texts me, you have to come in here. This is just what you're trying to do too. You're gonna love this guy. And I'm like, all right, let me let me see. And uh, I got somebody to man the booth and went over there. And uh, and I was really impressed. I mean, Emmanuel gives a phenomenal presentation. And he was <laughs> talking about how we really need to teach kids functional programming, essentially, uh, that um, that it's a uh, you know, one-to-one relationship with the algebra they're learning in school. And, uh, and so he's really trying to get algebra classes to – I actually don't know what, what he's doing at the moment. Um, I haven't spoken to him in a while, but, uh, but at least at the time, he's, he was trying to get uh, teachers to teach four weeks of bootstrap uh, during their year of algebra, and that would actually help them with algebra too. And, uh, and what, I, what, what he made me think about – was why am I teaching functional programming last? Maybe it should be first. And uh, and so after I so then we had lunch and I uh, I was talking to him for a while and really really impressed with him and really impressed with his presentation. I mean a lot of the presentation I agreed with and then I'd already been teaching, um, but uh, but he was really pushing that for kids to learn this first. And, and that's what really uh, was really exciting for me. And so I came back to UCode that later that day, and I was like, let's try teaching kids uh, functional programming first. And, uh, and so we did that, and it was incredible. I mean, when, when uh, we were, I was teaching during Ruby and Ruby on Rails, I never taught recursion. Uh, in Clojure, recursion was it was critical because um, unless they were going to be doing well, I wanted them to learn recursion in, instead of loops. And you know that you can do the the filter and the map and the folds. I think it's called reduce in Clojure, um, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I wanted them to learn recursion, and that was a big stumbling block for kids. But when you taught, uh, but when you when you teach recursion first before having taught how to a for loop or anything like that. And that is the only way to go through the elements of a list. And they need to go through the elements of a list. Kids were great with it. And, you know, you, you, that was the IMAX curriculum too. Um, yeah, so as, uh, my kid's school uses IMAX for anybody that doesn't know. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. and so I spent a year just, there yeah, volunteering. Maybe. Yeah, and just to and, kind of and, connect and with helping a lot of kids with IMAX. Yeah, yeah, I, right. um, I, I was, yeah. So it's kind of funny how how you and I got connected. I, um, uh, a venture capitalist uh, who, who's investing in your company, uh, Sean Fisher, connected us uh, at the same time as your son started going to the school where I was teaching IMAX. So, um, so we we met kind of in two different directions at the same time. Uh, so that was really fun. Yeah, that that was a. That was a huge coincidence. I, uh, I I had met you through Shanna Fisher, and then um, I, my kids were starting a new school, and they told me ahead of time that we're teaching Scheme, and 
And I was like, wow, you're teaching Scheme. This is amazing. I didn't know anybody else was even teaching functional programming. And, and, and this new school is. This, is. this is great. And so, uh, so my kids start, and, and uh, you're the teacher, <laughs> but remotely uh, through, yeah. uh, through video conferencing. That was, uh, that was yeah, pretty crazy. I, yeah. And I, um, because that, that was crazy I, because you're in New York, and this is in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, it it was wacky and it didn't really make any sense, but you know, I I you know, I I spoke to the people who were running the school. They liked what, you know, I was up to and and the way I spoke about IMAX, the IMAX curriculum cuz the, the curriculum that I was teaching at at the school was the same that I went through as a, I, when I was a kid, so you know, clearly I'm very passionate about this stuff, so they were excited about it. So yeah. um so so we made it work. Um and then when when you joined the school, I um I thought it would be fun uh, to have your son uh, help me teach teach other kids. So, so I, uh, I I don't remember how we did it, but I I asked him if he would be interested in kind of le- doing the entire course like very quickly before the school year started, so he could help you know other kids. And and um, I don't think I, I barely helped him even once. I'm sure I'm sure maybe maybe he asked you for help, but it seemed like he just kind of flew through it. It was like the you know it was just fun and easy for him. And then and he was a, he was a great help. So that was that was really fun to get to. Work with your son, even just a little bit, because uh, you know, there were a few times he asked for help, yeah. but uh, it was rare. <laughs> yeah, well, he's uh, for better or worse, he's had to live with me for eleven years, and and so he <laughs> he had no choice but to learn programming pretty well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, thankfully, uh, he he loves it, and uh, <laughs> and so <laughs> if he didn't love it, I think I'd still make him do it, and <laughs> he'd just not be as happy with it. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that was, that was a crazy coincidence. Uh, what was I talking about right before, uh, the history of Ucode and closure meeting scan manual scanser? Um, yeah, that was, that was pretty amazing meeting, um, manual scanser. I, I would then, uh, go through his entire bootstrap course, um, and, uh, and, and talk with him a bit more. We had a, a great long dinner and, um, and I was, I was really happy to, to see his work. Um, we, he, he definitely takes a, a very algebra, you know, like a, like a math class algebra approach to things, mm. um, which I, I think is, is great too. Um, that's, so I, I, so our curriculum, we don't, uh, we don't necessarily try to teach algebra or, or math. Uh, we, we really focus on the computer science. Um, that's hopefully a, a very happy, uh, byproduct of learning computer science in this fashion, in this purely yeah. functional type of way, uh, purely as much as we can. Uh, so that kind of leads us to present day, or I'll, I'll even just uh, throw in some more things there. Um, uh, we, at the time, we were actually teaching Scratch App Inventor. So after they did finish Scratch, our Scratch curriculum, they would go into App Inventor, which is like Scratch, but for Android devices. And then... Uh, and then we would teach them HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Uh, JavaScript turned out to be more difficult for the same exact concepts in Ruby and in JavaScript. It was more difficult for kids in JavaScript. The shorter, simpler syntax of Ruby made a difference with kids. Um, I was kind of huh. surprised by that. Yeah, uh, I'm, so, I'm a little surprised by this too. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe we could have just, taught it more effective. I mean, since then, we, I think we've improved dramatically in how we teach and how we scaffold things and how we, uh, how we approach JavaScript. 
And so we're, we're able to do that very effectively now. And, and I'm sure much more effectively than we were able to with Ruby. But given the same instruction, same concepts for Ruby and for JavaScript, uh, kids, were, kids had an easier time with Ruby. So, uh, so after, uh, after that, um, we migrated slowly away from, uh, away from Scratch and App Inventor because they, we were not able to teach in a functional style in those, in those environments. And the, the, the problems sometimes we were facing were kids could pretty quickly and easily, I mean, I think one of the great strengths of Scratch is that kids can pretty quickly and easily create interesting things. And, uh, and I think it's pretty exciting for a lot of kids. Uh, that's a, that's a huge strength. Uh, but, uh, the, that's a weakness as well, because then when we try to teach them, uh, JavaScript or another language, suddenly they have to type a lot and it's, it's not immediately like, uh, within the first 10 minutes, they get something on the screen and, uh, and that can be annoying for kids. And they kind of want to, in the beginning, keep going back to scratch and, and, uh, and, and the, because we were teaching in a different style than the procedural imperative style of Scratch and where, where functions, which are, you know, the make-a-block mechanism in Scratch, don't return a value uh, or at least don't return a value very easily. You can, you can have workarounds for that. But uh, now it's kind of a whole different way of thinking about code. Um, we we stopped doing scratch um, because, or we gradually stopped doing scratch because we didn't want uh, we, we didn't see the value in in starting with that. So now we just start immediately in HTML and CSS, and we actually go kind of deep in HTML and CSS using CSS variables and some of the more complicated mechanisms there, and and then uh, JavaScript. Hmm, and. Um... Do you use like a JavaScript library? Uh, is it like a lot of the const keyword? Do you use like an immutable stuff? Like how, yeah. how do you? Yeah. Yeah. So we don't even teach them the var or the let keyword for a while. Hmm. Uh, we the only in fact we don't even teach them the function keyword for a while. Uh, we teach them only const. And uh, and if you want to create a function, it's const name of the function equals and then a single parameter and then the fat arrow equals greater than sign. And yep. uh, so they can um, only create a single too. parameter, right? So we do single parameter functions uh, for a while. If they want two parameters, you know, they return a function that takes another parameter. Wow. And so they get automatic, uh, so they get automatic currying that way through JavaScript and JavaScript syntax allows for that nicely. You know, so if you want a two parameter really? function, you, yeah, if you want a two parameter function, uh, we, we, we teach kids only one parameter functions. Um, so if you want two parameters, if you want a function to operate on two different inputs, then you create, uh, let's say the function was called foo, you, you type const foo equals a for the first parameter, fat arrow, b, and then fat arrow, and then the, the, compute, you know, the algorithm or the, the actual body of the function. And so to call the function, you do foo parentheses and then the value for A and then another set of parentheses and then the value for B. And then, of course, if you mm -hmm. don't specify the value for B, it returns you a one-argument function. Ah, so cool. Yeah, that's, you know, I guess that's how you do it in Haskell. Or, well, 
Yeah, that's yes. that's beautiful. I, that's really cool that you do do it that way. It's like a really thoughtful um, thing. I, yeah, I almost I'm almost yeah thinking about how how, this, how that that might work in my curriculum. I, I don't. It, it, yeah, very cool. I'm very impressed. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so we we really uh, stress the functional uh, techniques in JavaScript, and so we go pretty pretty far. Uh, we use a language called Sanctuary. Uh, sorry, not a language uh, framework or library uh, called Sanctuary that gives us um, it gives us two uh, data types: a, a maybe and an either. Um, sure, you're familiar with those data structures. Also, um, can be thought of as uh, Monads or applicatives, because uh, because you have the various functions that that allow you to map and fold and bind other functions to it. Yeah. So yep. Uh, so we try to get kids to to think of. Oh, the other thing we do with JavaScript is um, we we do teach them var let and for loops and if statements and that kind of stuff, but later. Um, and, and with the caveat of try not to use these when you don't have to. And, uh, and sometimes you have to, and we give the reasons why, and especially working with other libraries and other code, um, that's typically the reason why. Um, so, right, uh, we, we really try to stress the, uh, the functional aspects. of it going somewhere with this with uh, maybes or eithers? I don't remember. Well, I think um, I you do HTML, CSS really deeply. Then you do JavaScript in, in this way. Then what is there something else after? Elm. So then we uh, we make the switch to Elm, which is now a uh, a purely functional language, and it's typed. And so, um, so that's that's pretty neat. And it's actually a a fairly simple language in that it doesn't have um, too many things to understand before you can be productive, or, or, or even before you can learn the entire, entire framework and language. So Elm is kind of two things. It's a language, and it's something uh, that's built in called the Elm architecture, or T, and, uh, and that allows you to create websites using this model view update mechanism. But, uh, but what's neat about it is, is everything is purely functional. There is no there are no mutable variables. There's no such thing as a variable in the traditional computer or programming sense of the word. Uh, there are only constants. And in fact, um, you can think of everything as a function. And if a function doesn't have any arguments, that is a constant. Mm. And, uh, and, and like you said, it, it's drawn heavily from Haskell, except it's, it cut out a lot of the, the a lot of uh, more complicated features of Haskell. You don't have higher kinded types. You don't have type systems. You don't have um, a lot of things that uh, that 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 give Haskell a lot of power in being able to generalize things, um, but also make the language a lot more complex. And uh, and so you end up with a language that I think is is pretty beautiful, um, but it's still growing, and there's still there's still uh, there's still a lot of things I wish that Elm had. Uh, but for teaching kids, it's amazing. Uh, like JavaScript, like we mentioned before, everything is a one, it, it's at least conceptually, everything is a one parameter function. So if you have a function that, that takes two parameters, but you only give it one parameter, you get back a function that takes one parameter. 
Totally. Um, and, yeah. So for me, the, and we use the that we use that um, concept pretty heavily. Yeah, yeah. For for me, it, it feels like the the transition for you from teaching scratch first, and then like kind of meeting Emmanuel, and then kind of cutting that stuff, the imperative stuff out, and just going to HTML, CSS, and JavaScript in a functional way. I feel like. Uh, like it, it almost sounds to me like you're going to eventually cut out the HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, and then just go directly to Elm. Or am I am I missing something? Well, um, the thinking was well, we we need HT, at least some HTML. I mean, it's, it's not a lot of HTML and CSS. It's it's not like they go through years of that, but uh, but but we do go kind of deep in mm. it um, because we want kids to. So even in Elm. You've got to know HTML and CSS. Mm. So okay, that's fair. You, so then why why JavaScript then? Yeah, the uh, the thinking there is um, JavaScript is pretty ubiquitous. I uh, I want yeah. I want kids to learn a language that is very practical too. Yeah, um, yeah there there are a few reasons. Too. Yeah, so so we also teach something called Firebase. I don't know how familiar you are yeah. with Firebase. Um, but I love familiar. it. I was very yeah, yeah, me too. I, okay. I love it's love hate. It's love hate. I I'm very excited about the new <laughs> Fire Store that just came out. Yes, I'm familiar with it. Um, yeah, so at least right now we're teaching Firebase. We may we may also or instead of that teach uh, Fire Store. Uh, there are, there are pros and cons to each, and and Google says that they are developing both Firebase and Firestore, yeah. and there are reasons to not use Firestore and Firebase. Um, but uh, that. <clears throat> So if you want to use Firebase and you want to use uh, functions, uh, server-side functions, you have to use JavaScript. You can't use Elm because Elm doesn't compile to a server-side JavaScript kind of system, uh, not yet at least. And so, so there, are many, there are many areas, many things that, kids, that we want kids to be able to do that do require mm -hmm. them to use at least something other than Elm. And JavaScript is, is a really great great language that's pretty ubiquitous and used almost everywhere now, even in embedded systems and all over the place. So um, on top of that, Elm compiles to JavaScript, so it's kind of nice to know what's going on when you're yeah, writing you Elm code. code. And, right, not that they're really going to go into the, uh, the output of the Elm compiler or the, you know, the, the JavaScript that's produced, but you know, maybe, maybe they'll be able to understand the error messages a little clearer, although as there a, are not. You're one of the. <laughs> well, that's not that's not quite true. So the the, it is one of the great advantages of Elm, and I think just in general, strongly typed functional languages, and purely functional languages, is that you eliminate a large class of errors, very common errors that kids make. You know, the null and all the various null types well, in every, JavaScript, every uh, undefined. Run, every runtime error. Right, <laughs> right, right. And you just eliminate that entirely, uh, kind of entirely. Uh, it's still possible to get some runtime errors in Elm, but it's just very difficult. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's even harder for kids to do it. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. but, but what happens is sometimes in Elm, you have to work with JavaScript because, for example, you need a JavaScript uh, API that is only written in JavaScript, and you can't re-implement that in Elm too easily. One example is Firebase. So we actually use yep, Elm yep. Firebase, which is an adapter um, or a, a library that you can use Firebase. But it's it's using the native, so you can still get you can still get errors uh, because it's using um, native interface in in, Fire, in Elm, 
And I get it. And so that that opens up for errors. So, uh, but you can use ports with with Firebase if you want to use uh, Firestore. You can only you only can use ports right now, or write your own native interface, which has some of the same issues. So, when, <clears throat> whenever <clears throat> whenever Elm has to interact with JavaScript, and there are other reasons why you want to interact with JavaScript too, uh, through JSON, it's it's pretty common to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's there true. can be errors. Right, and yeah. and those errors yeah. you can, if you know JavaScript, you can figure out what's going on. There. You can tell them. Yeah, the, so that really, really thoughtful. I I appreciate uh, all those thoughts. I um, I sorry, I just want to kind of, uh, I have a, I have a few questions I really want to get to, so I'm just gonna uh, be a, li sure. a little r more rude uh, uh, with yeah. with interrupting you. Um, sorry. Um, Go ahead. So one thing that one thing that I have been thinking a lot about um, building, which I think like is relevant to both of us and also to Emmanuel uh, and um, to, to Professor Anand. Um, so like maybe we could all collaborate on, or I don't know, we'll, we'll see. But um, uh, an idea that I've been thinking about is um, if you think about like Scratch and Woof, like like Scratch is is Woof is like the the text based language for that's like the equivalent to Scratch. And so if you kind of do that mm -hmm. process in reverse, like I made Wolf based on Scratch. If you, do, if you run that in reverse, and you take like something like Elm or Pyret with the Big Bang model, um, which is very similar yep. to Elm and the Elm architecture, which I find hilarious. And, and you, so you run this process in reverse, and you take a, a language architecture that's functional and declarative and algebraic. Do you think we could build a, um, a, something like Scratch uh, to, yeah. Yeah, for, for kids to start with? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We, uh, I mentioned to you a while ago that I uh, I wanted to build something like that. I actually wrote up a or drew up a mock-up, a series of mock-ups on uh, on a tool that would uh, um, that would do that in in the form of a of the Big Bang model, where you have the uh, this Big Bang function. I called it something else, but uh, but essentially <clears throat> something that kicks off your world and. And then you pat, you tell it, okay, what are your functions that handle the rendering and uh, and listening for particular events, keyboard, mouse, uh, clock ticks, yep, uh, things yep. like that. Um, and uh, and I just got too busy with other things to to really make any progress on that. And then and then I thought, um, well, the Elm architecture that would be pretty amazing. It, the Elm architecture is a little bit different, or a little bit more complicated than the uh, the Big Bang mm -hmm. model. Yeah. Um, so the Elm architecture has message passing and um, and an update mechanism uh, to deal with that. So uh, the Big Bang is really great for interactive graphics, uh, but uh, the Elm the Elm architecture allows for quite a bit more uh, functionality. That you know, with, with um, tasks and fascinating. If you're at your computer now, or if you're or if not, I'll remind you later. I would love to see those. The design things, and and if if it's all right, I'd, I'd love to upload them so other people can yeah. see them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, let me take let me take another quick look at them, make sure I'm not going to embarrass myself. But uh, I'll. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll okay, well, I'll, 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 yeah, I'll be sure here. I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure to write it down. I'd love to see those. So um, yeah, that that'll be great. Yeah, I, I was excited about it at the time, uh, but. Uh, um, but uh, we we have we had so many other things I wanted to do too, and those just took priority. But if uh, totally. if you or other people want to get involved too, uh, maybe all together creating this this great thing, um, that would be exciting. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm cool. Uh, this this is that's very exciting to me. I I think this is one of my more uh, 
it's one of the prototype ideas that I'm more excited about and and, and I think about a lot. So, so yeah, I'd like, yeah, let's, let's keep talking about this. Um, uh, great. Um, cool. So that like, um, my, my next question was going to be, uh, I remember you were working on a, your own programming language interface thing. Can you tell me about it? But you know, I, we are, we are, that was, that was it. So, uh, so that was (laughs) the last question. (laughs) Um, so, uh, I guess the last thing that I like to ask is, um, uh, if you could like expose like the ways to interact with you, like your public interface, uh, is it a Twitter handle, an email address? Uh, like, uh, are, are you looking for collaborators or are you looking for people to come work at Ucode? Um, whatever, whatever it is, um, I'll give you a space to kind of talk about that. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, to contact me, uh, is it okay to give out my email address? Well, I don't think I'll get spam <laughs> from people listening uh, to the podcast. Um, but, uh, yeah, me, yeah, go for it. I don't know. Good luck. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm, I, I haven't gotten some so far. Right, right. Um, well, uh, uh, I'll just give out my email address, scott, S-E-O-T-T, at ucode.com, U-C-O-D-E.com. Um, for what we're looking for, uh, collaborators, um, I'm open to anything, but we're not we're not specifically looking for any collaborators right now. We have just started franchising. In fact, we're we're, we're just finalizing the legal paperwork right now. Uh, we've got the final draft of our uh, franchise disclosure document, which is what you need to start franchising, and we're just reviewing that. Um, and so, if anybody wants to open up some U codes anywhere, uh, definitely get in contact with me. Uh, we're looking for yeah, people that are passionate. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, and and the big thing is um, we want people that are really passionate about computer science. If you're passionate about computer science and you see these kids, you know, kind of open their eyes to to this this incredible rich subject discipline industry, uh, it's it's pretty magical, and uh, and so we want to offer as many people that that opportunity as possible. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm really, I'm really excited to, to see that grow. Um, yeah, there's no reason that we shouldn't have, yeah. like, U codes scattered, like, you know, dotting, dotting the country, kind of like, uh, like Kaplan or whatever. You know, that that that's amazing. I, I wish you yeah, luck there. That's fun. Yeah, well, I know you're in a similar position. I, I don't. We 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 discussed some of that, but you're. Yeah. You have. Yeah, to, yeah. Uh, well, the coding space as yeah, well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, so the coding space. Um, Scott's been, uh, I just I kind of talked to the audience now, Scott uh, has been giving me uh, really great advice, uh, like business advice uh, as, as well, because, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, Ucode is, is uh, like, uh, we're, we, we started similar businesses on different coasts, uh, and you're just, you know, uh, a number of years ahead. So uh, it's really good to, good to learn from all of your experience. Um, yeah, we, we are also expanding in similar ways, but, but much, much smaller. Like, you know, we have, like, one and a half centers now we want to go to a we want to add add a few more um so so uh, uh yeah if you're if you're looking to, to franchise i'd say yeah talk to scott and uh for, for now maybe maybe in a little while uh you could come talk to us about that um if you're on the east coast maybe so um but, but yeah so thanks for bringing that up yeah we um yeah and i and thanks again for all the advice you give uh on this on this front to me it's been, it's been really helpful yeah well, I uh, I know we're kind of competitors, but I, I very much appreciate what you're trying to do. 
as well. And <laughs> yeah. 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 That's it's funny. Yeah. Like there's, there's no part of me that, yeah, feels competitive. Like we're, we're um, trying to like, we're, we're like, to me, it feels like we're much more like collaborators, um, which is funny. Cause like, I guess technically like maybe one day we, we could be fighting over the same customers, <laughs> but um, like, it, it's like, to me, it's like not about that. It's about like the impact yeah. we want to have and, um, yeah. the company, the company is making money. It just means to, to, to the end here. Uh, so, right. And I feel like so. also if we, uh, if we're fighting over the same customers, that means, uh, we've grown pretty big, uh, yeah. we're on opposite yeah. coast and, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. and that sounds like a great exactly. problem. That's, that, yeah. that means we're, we're both then, having a huge impact on kids and, uh, yeah, exactly. I, and, and we're, and we just have a few little kids that we we're, we're, we're fighting over. <laughs> Yeah, and that's when we write up the uh, the merger agreement, and, and then it's just a matter of who's buying who. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Um, well, um, anyway, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. This was really fun, um, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Same here. All right. Have a good day. Bye. All right. You too.